American International Pictures presents Cannibal Girls. They're young, beautiful, and very, very sexy. They love every man they meet. First to death, then for dinner. Welcome to Reitman for the Job, where we explore the films of director Ivan Reitman. I'm Ross May, here to tell the world that I am not delicious. In fact, I'm very, very bitter. This is our episode one proper, where we're looking at Reitman's first feature film, Foxy Lady from 1971, and, and oh, it's not available at all. If you remember last episode, I actually mentioned that I thought Foxy Lady might be a hoax, but Andrea Martin mentioned that it is indeed a real movie, and she acted in it. But as far as she knows, Ivan Reitman might have the only prints of it. I'm not sure if he's embarrassed of his early work or what, but I've never heard him talk about it. I always hear him mention Cannibal Girls as really the start of his filmmaking career, and Meatballs as his breakout success. So, for now, we're skipping Foxy Lady and taking a bite out of Cannibal Girls. But first, let's answer some listener emails. Where they are. Emails. Professor Lawrence Pierce of the University of Chicago asks the most important question in all of existence. Is Ghostbusters your favorite movie? Thanks, Professor. The answer is yes, but I'm aware enough to recognize that Ghostbusters isn't the best movie ever made. There are some weird things about Ghostbusters the movie, which we'll really get into when we cover it on the podcast. But just off the top of my head, there's how Winston is introduced halfway through the film, the crossing the streams idea is a good way to stop Gozer at the end of the film, but it doesn't really tie into anything inherent in, say, the comedy. Compare that to Back to the Future, where the solution to the movie is set up before Marty even travels back through time. Back to the Future is working on a really tight, almost perfect script, while Ghostbusters is kind of off-kilter and required improvisation to make it work, which is maybe part of its charm. You know, another movie that I can tell is maybe actually a better movie in a technical sense? Groundhog Day by Harold Ramis. Now, I don't like what Groundhog Day is doing quite as much. It doesn't invite people to imagine themselves as Phil Connors and cosplay as him, but it's kind of hard to deny that it doesn't explore its idea perfectly. So why is Ghostbusters my favorite movie? I honestly don't think it's just nostalgia. It's more like it's related to that concept, or to that world. I keep bringing up the real Ghostbusters, and I know some people can take or leave the cartoon show. I totally recognize the flaws of the cartoon, but I think for being a kid's cartoon, it really demonstrated what could be done repeatedly with the idea. The Ghostbusters fight the supernatural, but they're also just ordinary people who make light of their situations. So I'll admit that it's the general idea of Ghostbusters that make it probably my favorite fandom and my favorite movie, even though there might be a few movies out there that are technically a little bit better. And hey, don't get me wrong, Ghostbusters is still probably one of the greatest comedies ever. Professor Lawrence's second question is kind of related. Is Ivan Reitman your favorite director? Right now, at the start of this podcast, my answer is no, but that's one of the things we can all nail down for certain. I generally think well of a lot of his films, but he doesn't strike me as an auteur or anything. Though hey, maybe we'll all be surprised and realize some common things apart from just saying that he usually directs comedy. I'm not really looking forward to say, my super ex-girlfriend, but I'm open to being surprised. So who is my favorite director? It's a cliche answer, but it's probably Alfred Hitchcock. Not because he even directed my favorite kinds of movies, but I think he consistently made very, very good ones. I've seen around two-thirds of all of Hitchcock's surviving films, some of his older stuff is gone, and I can't think of a truly bad one, even from the silent era. I want to go on a little tangent about Alfred Hitchcock. 
He was born in 1899, and it's almost appropriate that he's maybe the best director of the 20th century, that he's kind of emblematic of what films were for most of the 20th century, I mean. He got to make the transition from silent movies to talkies and then to color, and his last film was Family Plot in 1976. Family Plot is not his best movie, but I think it's still darn good. But what's extra appropriate to me is that it came out the year after Steven Spielberg's Jaws, and the year before Star Wars, and, and, he even had John Williams score Family Plot. My point is that Hitchcock was really the king of his generation, and most of his films fit what we used to consider blockbusters. Then Jaws and then even Star Wars comes out, and they blow Hitchcock's movies out of the water in terms of pop culture, impact, and revenue. With movies we have today, Lord of the Rings and more Star Wars and now the Marvel movies, they're still honestly following in the wake of Jaws and the first Star Wars. There's almost a pretty clean division between Hitchcock's films and then Spielberg, Lucas, and everyone who would work with them or take cues from them. So I just noticed that Hitchcock's final film, Family Plot, was scored by John Williams and is wedged right in between the two 70s movies that would mark what movies are today. By the way, none of this is me saying that I idolize Hitchcock. The guy could be a horrible human being, and I'm not even saying I find his films flawless, just that if you look at who's the most important filmmaker for most of the 20th century, I think Hitchcock might be at the top of the list. Oh, and if you want to tweet at me about Billy Wilder, or Orson Welles, or John Ford, or whoever else you want, that's fine. But you get my point, right? Hitchcock is up there. And if you want to know my favorite Hitchcock film, it's Rear Window. For anyone who doesn't know, Rear Window is the movie that the Simpsons make fun of when Bart breaks his leg because of their new swimming pool, and then he thinks Ned Flanders has killed Maude. So there's some movie recommendations for you. Hitchcock movies, but especially Rear Window. I honestly should get back to this week's movie, so let's roll an ad and then talk about it. Hey, did you know that you can get from Street Fighter to Avatar? Or that it's just a quick detour from The Collector to Elektra? Join us on Filmstrips, the podcast that explores all the connections you never knew existed. Each episode, David and I throw a brand new film under the microscope. Maybe it's a musical. Maybe it's a monster movie. Maybe it's terrible. The only rule is that it has to connect to the episode before. So join us each week for a brand new episode available on iTunes, Podomatic, or wherever free podcasts are sold. Get yourself a shotgun seat as we take a long, strange trip through the movies. Hi again. A reminder, that podcast is Film Strips. See, if you parse it out, it can either be Film Strips or Films Trips, like you're on a journey. That's very clever, guys. Couple of nerds. Our feature film is Cannibal Girls, released in June 1973. Let's have a look at the news of that month. On June 9th, the Horse Secretariat wins the Belmont Stakes, making him the first Triple Crown winner since 1948. So, the Triple Crown is winning three prestigious races, and winning all of them is akin to a horse winning the season in racing. As of 2019, there have been 13 American Triple Crown winners, and Secretariat is one of the most famous racehorses to have ever lived. There's a 2010 movie about Secretariat, and he gets referenced a fair bit in media. If you remember the Simpsons episode where they go to New York, one of the jokes is that the carriage driver has Secretariat. In keeping with Cannibal Girls' theme of intersecting with the horror genre, on June 19th, the stage production of the Rocky Horror Picture Show debuts in London. Tim Curry played Dr. Frankenfurter, which he would also play in the movie version. That's it for news. Let's talk about the production of Cannibal Girls, directed by Ivan Reitman and written by not really anyone. There's a great half-hour interview Ivan Reitman and Dan Goldberg give about Cannibal Girls from 2010. Their interviewer is actually their friend and co-worker Joe Medjuk, who Ghostheads will be familiar with. 
But yes, there's a great interview on Cannibal Girls. You can view this on its Blu-ray disc like I did, or you can Google Cannibal Girls and Shout Factory, and you'll see it on Shout Factory's website. I should really let Ivan and Dan speak for themselves, as it's an interesting story and you might as well hear it directly from them. The quick version is that they wanted to make an exploitive film with their friends, so they raised a bit of money and came up with an outline, but didn't bother with a script, then filmed north of Toronto. An elderly lady named Mae Jarvis let them film in her very nice home, and she even played the motel owner in the movie, so it's kind of neat that this older woman was so game to help these young people make a movie about sex and cannibalism. Also, for you Toronto residents, that woman Mae Jarvis, she's from the Jarvis family that Jarvis Street is named after. She's a descendant of Anglo-Canada's elite, and had an ancestor who fought in the War of 1812, and she also had ancestors who were slave owners. I'm sorry for the tangent, but I also teach history, so this stuff fascinates me. Reitman and his crew filmed north of Toronto on a tiny budget in nine days during winter. They edited it together and realized it was too short and also didn't make any sense. So they got back and filmed some more, but it was still not enough, so they filmed some more, and this went on for months and they spent way more money than they originally intended and went into debt. I'll spoil something right now. The shooting became extra funny because they finally ended up filming outside in the summer, so when you watch Cannibal Girls, the seasons change back and forth. They got down to a crunch time because Ivan and his girlfriend Genevieve, whom he later married, flew to the Cannes Film Festival, booked Cannibal Girls two showings in theaters, then spent all their time plastering posters advertising the film to potential distributors. Meanwhile, the film still wasn't edited back in Toronto, and Dan has a great story about how that all nearly went to hell. But the film got over to Cannes on the first day it was supposed to be shown, just in the nick of time, like within hours of it needing to be in a projection booth. The audiences for the two showings at Cannes weren't really movie lovers. It was really small groups of European and Asian movie distributors looking to see if they could sell this film. All of them weren't interested, but there was one ideal person present from America, an executive named Sam Arkoff from American International Pictures. American International Pictures presents... Sam Arkoff was perfect because he traded in schlock. If I could do a Phil Hartman impression, I'd try to introduce some of these movie titles like Troy McClure. Hi, I'm Sam Arkoff. You may remember me from producing such films as Naked Paradise, The Astounding She-Monster, The Brain That Wouldn't Die, Operation Bikini, The Thing With Two Heads, and X, The Man With X-Ray Eyes. I could honestly keep listing those for like five minutes, but don't get me wrong, he also presented prestigious films like Blackula. Sam Arkoff was the best fit, and he told Ivan that he'd consider it. Days went by to the last day of Cannes, and Ivan had to track down Arkoff again. Arkoff offered a deal that included an advance that would cover the debt they incurred from the movie, so Ivan was over the moon. That's the behind the scenes of Cannibal Girls, and I'd really advise you to seek out that interview with Dan Goldberg and Ivan Reitman, because it's more fun when they say it, and there's some great stuff that I'm still leaving out. The movie stars Andrea Martin and Eugene Levy, who would both be on SCTV three years later in 76, and they'd be working with lots of people we care about, including John Candy, Rick Moranis, Harold Ramis, and plenty more. I could get into Martin and Levy's biographies, but come on, you can read up on them yourself. Just before we get into it, here's one last bit of Canadiana. There's one scene in here with a great big guy playing a butcher. The actor's name is Fishka Race, and he was South African. If you're Canadian, you might have grown up watching a show called The Hilarious House of Frightenstein. That show is mostly notable because it had Vincent Price as the host, delivering spooky puns. Another lovely day begins. Close your eyes 
and you will find that you've arrived in Frankenstein. Perhaps the Count will find a way to make his monster work today. Okay, but my point, Fiska Race, the actor playing the butcher for one scene in this movie, played Igor in green paint in Frankenstein. Look on YouTube for the hilarious House of Frightenstein. Jump around until you find a scene of that big green guy. These are basically the only two things Fishka Race ever did as an actor. Frightenstein and Cannibal Girls. Anyway, this is such a specific, such a Canadian thing that I wanted to point it out. But let's get to it. Here's the plot to Cannibal Girls, directed by Ivan Reitman, starring Andrea Martin and Eugene Levy, with a special guest appearance by Fishka Race. Oh, oh, wait, one last thing. I guess when this was first shown in theaters, there was a concern that it might be too intense for audiences, so someone put in a bell sound that would let you know when to cover your face. The Shout Factory disc has both versions, with the bell sound and without. I only watched the non-bell version, but we can talk at the end about how gory this movie is. The movie begins with a couple laying a blanket out over the snow, ready to have some sexy times. I'll tell you, I'm Canadian, and I know how to make love in a canoe, but even I've never wanted to have sex out in the snow. The guy gets killed and the girl gets her top torn off and it looks like she's about to be killed too. Right off the bat, this scene has nothing to do with the rest of the plot and you can tell it's there just to get the runtime to 120 minutes. Here's the real plot. Andrea Martin and Eugene Levy play Gloria and Clifford, but that matters so little I'm just going to call them by their real names. You need to get a load of Levy. He's so bushy that he looks like a hippie version of Groucho Marx. It's very of the time. Oh, actually, he kind of looks like Gene Shalit, if you know who that is. They're out for a little winter vacation and stop in the woods so Eugene can take a piss, and we go through some horror movie cliches like the car nearly not starting while a cannibal girl with a knife watches them at a distance. They reach a gas station, and have you ever seen Cabin in the Woods, the horror movie where they establish that you have to go through certain horror cliches for a reason? This movie does the same thing with a creepy guy at the gas station. I should get this out of the way so I don't have to keep on mentioning it. There's no script to this movie, and all the actors just improvise their dialogue. This does make things more naturalistic, with nobody saying anything clever and actors awkwardly repeating themselves sometimes. If you think this makes things any more interesting, it does not. Early on, Andrea Martin repeats several times how beautiful the town and surrounding countryside are, which is kind of funny because on screen everything looks gray and slushy and not very appealing. Andrea and Eugene stop at a motel where they're the only visitors, and if I'm being very generous, I can say this is an homage to the movie Psycho. And hey, the motel is run by Mae Jarvis, the woman who lent her nice house to be used for the movie. Mae tells them the local legend of three cannibal girls. Here's another sequence that was definitely filmed later for the runtime. It's summer, and each cannibal girl picks up a guy. It's almost a montage because they're so short and inconsequential. One girl seduces a guy at a bar, and again the dialogue is so awkward. Another is my favorite because it's just a guy living like a hobo in the woods, and the woman just approaches him and brings him back to her place. I'm pretty sure Reitman and Goldberg couldn't think of another situation, so this guy is literally just in the woods doing nothing, not even hiking. The final scenario is the most interesting because a guy drives to the gas station at night and asks the creep there for directions. The creep tells him about a back road, and he must have organized things perfectly with the cannibal girls because one of them stands out on the road in a nightie, looking like a sexy ghost. The driver panics and hits the ditch. She takes that guy back to the cannibal girl's house to nurse him. Too bad Stephen King's misery wasn't published yet, otherwise he would know he's in for trouble. At first, I thought these were separate incidents and we were going to see all of these guys get killed one at a time, but it turns out it's actually the same time so all these guys get a chance to play Monopoly together and talk about how lucky they are to have run into these beautiful women. Two things to note here. 
One is that it's suddenly winter, showing a discontinuity problem with the editing. Remember, this flashback with the three guys had been in the summer. And I know you can say, well, maybe the season's changed. But again, as an expert Canadian here, you don't go from full-on summer to the middle of winter overnight. So the seasons don't make sense, and that's fun. The other thing is that the cannibal girls have this filthy, shaggy man-slave who takes care of the meat for them. If you know Dracula, he's sort of like a filthy version of Renfield, played by Dan Goldberg. What's hilarious is that there's a scene where one of the guys says hi to the slave, and he doesn't find it weird or address the fact that there's this monster man limping around the house with the girls. Sure enough, all three of the guys bite the dust after having sex with the cannibal girls. I'm making that sound more interesting than it really is. They don't have the budget to show anything gory or do special effects, so the murders are just the actors screaming in pain and then a cutaway to a bloody weapon. My favorite is the second guy, who has sex, then is immediately threatened by his lover with a knife. The guy backs away, asks her to stop a couple times, then out pops another girl from the closet and pretends to axe him in the back. She misses him by a mile, and just seeing her pop out of the closet is so unexpected and dumb. And we cut back to Mae Jarvis back at the motel telling the story. She says, But that was a long time ago now. So that surprised me. I would have thought she was going to frame this as a local legend, but nope, she claims this really happened. Now the Cannibal Girls' house is a nice restaurant in town. Andrea and Eugene say, Oh, isn't that interesting? Guess we'll have to go there tonight. Let's stop for a moment. I am not a person who is phased when I am told something grisly happened, like a murder. Like I said, I enjoy history, so I actually know where some murders happened in my hometown. But if I was told that a place really had cannibals, and now you can dine there, I would pass. But for these characters, this is all fascinating stuff. A couple of things happen before we get to the cannibal girl's house. First, Andrea and Eugene get to their room and have a little comedic scene where they're ready to have sex, but she falls asleep exhausted. So Eugene takes their car to the creepy gas station and asks the guy there to take a look at it. Even that's pretty funny because they speak a line each to each other and don't even exchange names, so Eugene has no guarantee he'll get his car back. Sure enough, the creep immediately puts a for sale sign up on the car. Meanwhile, a guy gets beat up and killed by some locals. We see the scope of the whole town's conspiracy because they talk to the chief of police, who then forwards the body on, and then we get a scene in a butcher shop. Hey, it's our special guest star, Fishka Race. He sells meat to a woman with a wink, and I guess now we're supposed to understand that actually most of the town are all cannibals? We'll get back to this later. Eugene and Andrea arrive at the... restaurant, which is just the cannibal girl's house. We're introduced to a man called the Reverend in a suit and top hat, who looks a lot like Jim Henson, which is pretty funny. This role was played by an actor named Ronald Ulrich, and honestly, he's really good, even though he has very few acting credits. The character is trying to be charming, but he shows around the house and he talks about all these artifacts and strange things about his family, including paintings of relatives who all murdered each other. This is trying to suggest some other gothic, spooky type stuff has been happening in the past to set a mood, but more than anything, it's really the movie just vamping for time again. The Reverend serves wine, and he even talks about how the grapes are grown off the grave of his grandfather, which is just stupid. We cut to another meal, this one at the police chief's home. His wife was the woman who bought the butcher's meat, and we see the creep from the gas station and the woman running the motel all dining together with them. They have a picture of the Reverend up on the wall and propose a toast to him with tomato juice. It's supposed to be blood, but it's tomato juice. So yeah, it's not just the girls who are cannibals, but it's this conspiracy involving everyone we've seen in town. There's also a doctor there, who we'll also see again. Back at the house, the Reverend convinces Andre and Eugene that there's a maniac on the loose in the woods, so they stay the night in a bedroom. The Reverend speaks to the cannibal girls, and it's revealed that drinking and eating from other people will give them eternal life, so they're kind of like vampires, maybe. I mean, 
we could just take it at face value, but then the movie never shows them hundreds of years ago or anything, so maybe they're just nuts who believe that they're vampires. Also, the girls start a ritual to get prepared to eat their victims, and they're all topless at the same time. I'm sure that was very important. The Reverend and the three cannibal girls enter Eugene and Andrea's bedroom, tie him up, and hypnotize her. The Reverend hands Andrea a knife and commands her to kill her boyfriend, but Eugene shouts at her and wakes her up. She struggles with the girls and gets out of the house and into the woods. Andrea runs out onto the road and flags down a car. The man who picks her up was a doctor present at the police chief's dinner party, so she's run into someone who is part of the conspiracy. She's sobbing, and he gives her water and a sedative. Oh no! And then she wakes up in her old clothes in the motel room. Yep, we're doing an it-was-all-a-dream sequence. Eugene comes back from the gas station, and Andrea's incredibly relieved that she just had a nightmare. They head into town, and she's still uneasy. She wants to get out of the town, but Eugene refuses because he just turned his car in to be fixed. She tries calling her parents in Toronto, but the operator says the phone line is down. She considers getting on a bus out of town, but the next bus is the next morning anyway. She argues with Eugene a bit before sobbing and hugging him. Also, also, we spot Lynn Logan again, back from the short film Orientation, and she's showing off her legs despite the cold weather. There's a scene of Eugene and Andrea sitting on the sidewalk at night, and I love this because it's another section filmed during the summer. The police chief rolls up in a car and complains that they're vagrants. They explain that they're not, so he says he's going to drive them to their destination. Eugene asks for a restaurant because he's hungry, so they get driven to the cannibal's home. I like it how the camera is trying to keep things dark enough to not show grass now, but there's totally grass at the side of the roads now and not snow. Anyways, the cop cocks a freaking gun and tells them to get into the restaurant. Eugene no-sells this, like it's just an inconvenience that he's being threatened with murder. We're down to the final few minutes of the movie, and I'm honestly wondering if bad stuff is going to happen or it's all just some stupid joke. The slave, the reverend, and the cannibal girls all show up in the living room, and this turns out to be a huge betrayal from Eugene. Turns out he followed instructions from the reverend to bring Andrea back to them. I guess we're supposed to assume he was hypnotized, but he doesn't act at all like he's hypnotized, and he's about to try to weasel his way out of his fate and leave Andrea behind. The Reverend hypnotizes Andrea again and tells her to finally kill her boyfriend, which honestly Eugene should have figured out before he made this deal. She picks up a mace and gives him a good whack in the stomach because it's the easiest way to try to convince the audience that you've killed someone. Stabbing a person convincingly is beyond what this movie is able to do. So Eugene is down and Andrea joins the three cannibal girls. We cut to a dinner scene where the girls are all eating disgustingly and then Andrea joins in. We get kind of an amusing coda where the motel owner is speaking to another young couple, telling them the legend of the cannibal house, and the couple act like idiots and say to each other, Oh yeah, a cannibal house sounds like fun. And that's the movie. It's review time. You know what? This is not a very good movie, and not just because its plot is pretty dumb. Actually, I'll give one thing to the plot. Doing the, it was all a dream, and that being a fake-out, that everyone in town is in on this conspiracy, and even Eugene joins in on the end, is actually the most interesting thing about the story. It's not realistic or anything, but this idea that Andrea can't trust anyone, not even Eugene, and he ends up getting punished for his betrayal, that's actually decent. Eugene Levy is pretty good, but he doesn't come off as someone you're sure is going to have a great future in acting. Actually, Ronald Ulrich playing the Reverend, hamming it up, he's really interesting. He's acting like he's in a dinner theater, which I guess he is. That's a joke. Anyway, he's always making references around the house to this or that was involved in some grisly murder, and at least he makes things interesting for a while. This movie is described as a horror comedy, and it barely is. I mean, I'm sure everyone behind the scenes were joking around because they knew how dumb the premise was, 
But honestly, the only real comedy bits come from Ulrich making dark jokes about all the objects in the house and Andrea Martin doing some funny things throughout. I'll talk about her. Andrea Martin definitely comes across as the best actor in this movie. She's convincing when she needs to be, and she does funny bits like interrupt Eugene Levy when he tries to be romantic with her. You can really tell that from everyone she was the most likely to have a future in acting. Compare her to the Cannibal Girls who barely say anything. Actually, there's only two scenes where they talk extensively, one where a girl gets friendly with a victim in a bar, and another where they're cooking in the kitchen together, and that scene is especially painful. Those are some of the scenes they must have filmed extra and added in. Honestly, after Andrea Martin and Ronald Ulrich's performances, the most interesting thing about this movie was watching the transition from winter to summer when it's not supposed to. That ended up just being a little game for me to play. I think Reitman and Goldberg wanted to make movies, and a schlocky film like this was the cheapest, easiest way to do it, and I don't think they really cared if it was considered straight or a horror comedy. I think people call it a comedy now because we know of Reitman's filmography, but honestly, I think they were playing it either way at the time. What else should I talk about? The car that's having trouble in the movie is a 1961 Cadillac convertible. This really doesn't matter, but it's just a few years off from being a 59 Cadillac like Ecto-1. You can see I'm grasping at straws for what to enjoy here. Finally, as much as I thought Ronald Ulrich was amusing as the Reverend, you don't see him in the first half of the film. I mean, he's not around for the three losers who get killed. And as boring as I found the girls, I was settled into the idea that they were the bosses of themselves. So when the Reverend shows up, I was let down that their dynamic was different. It's kind of like watching a production of Macbeth with the three witches, but here they decide to add in the Hecate scene. Hecate is the witch's boss in this one extra scene that might not have been written by Shakespeare. But take that crappiness and make this witch's boss a man as well? Boo. The movie is called Cannibal Girls, not Cannibal Girls and their boss who looks like Jim Henson. Come to think of it, I guess I appreciate the whole town being cannibals in this conspiracy to show what Andrea's up against at the end of the movie, but it kind of confuses the whole issue. If the draw are three sexy cannibal ladies, what makes them special or weird if they have a boss and an entire town who's also in on it? They don't even kill men and then deliver the meat to the townspeople. They're just isolated and kill guys for themselves. Meanwhile, a different guy gets murdered in town and is eaten by the people in the town. Apart from May Jarvis forwarding strangers to the cannibal girl's house, oh, and the cop who drives them back to the house, there's no connection between these two ideas. This isn't a big deal, but it just goes to show that there was a starting point in this movie, Cannibal Girls, and scenes were just grafted on as needed. Unfortunately, Ivan Reitman didn't really consider trying to make the ladies the central antagonists, or try to play up that they're special and evil, or even in charge of this crazy little cult. At the time, the appeal of this movie would have been for the schlock, and honestly for some of the topless girls. I think that's kind of the promise this movie was making, and it just barely delivered. I'll look at the big board. At number one, it's Ghostbusters. No surprise there. I wasn't too hot on Orientation, but you know what? Orientation is still better than this. So Cannibal Girls is in the bottom at number three. It's just too boring, and it's really not funny enough to be a comedy like people say it is. You know what else? I'm not a big horror movie guy, but the effects and editing make it not good enough to be a horror movie. Every death, except for Levy getting a mace to the stomach, happens off screen. I think the crew honestly didn't have the means to show any other kind of murder, so this also isn't a very good horror movie. The real value of seeing this horror movie is if you're like me and want to follow Ivan Reitman's career, or perhaps you want to see the humble start of Andrea Martin and Eugene Levy's. We watched Cannibal Girls, or at least I did. Next week we're taking a detour to Animal House from 1978. Ivan Reitman did not direct it, but he did co-produce it with Maddie Simmons, the publisher of National Lampoon. And I think that does it for this week. 
I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and if you'd like, you can ask me questions on Twitter at RossMayWriter, or go to RossMayWriter.com to find my email there. For now, I've been Ross May, and we better split up. We can do more damage that way. The castle lights are growing dim. There's no one left but me and him. When next we meet in Frankenstone, don't come alone.